Although I have been twice disappointed, I am not yet cast down or discouraged. God has been with me in spirit and has comforted me. I have now much more evidence that I do believe in God's word. And although surrounded with enemies and scoffers, yet my mind is perfectly calm and my hope in the coming of Christ is as strong as ever. I have fixed my mind upon another time, and here I mean to stand until God gives me more light. And that is today, today, and today until he comes and I see him for whom my soul yearns. William Miller, November 10, 1844. It's quite a line, isn't it? I have set my mind on this time. Maybe today. Maybe today. Maybe today. Let's pray. Dear God, we look back so that we can look forward. We've heard this for a hundred years. So how does a generation poised on the cusp of a new year, how does this become ours? Please, hide me. Just, just get out of the way so that you can have unbridled access to every young, middle-aged, and aged mind for this teaching. For Christ's sake, amen. So I want to run through with you, just kind of you and me chatting here. I want to run through with you why I believe we're running out of time. Then we'll share a story. Every one of these in this new series, Stories in the Rearview Mirror, will be a story. We'll get to the story. Let me comment for a moment on the headlines this week. I mean, can you believe this, this Paris story? It's just, just, just unfettered heartache. We have some satirical newspaper, Charlie Hebdo, is that the name of it? Terrorists walk in, point-blank range, execute nine journalists, two police, one hapless, innocent bystander. And then the whole world tracking the search for these outlaws. So here's the question, and I want you to think with me. How is the world ever going to prevent these random acts of violence in the future? Answer. If we, if we don't want to see Sydney again, and we don't want to see Paris again, and we don't want to see New York again, and we don't want to maybe have Chicago or L.A. or Tokyo or wherever. If we don't want to see those again, there's only one answer. You have to increase two essential commodities of the human race. Commodity number one, you must increase security. You have to. And commodity number two, you must increase surveillance. You have to. And they both have to be in tandem. Period. That's the only way. 
Otherwise, these random acts of violence will go on and on and on. And the crises will escalate. And the panic will deepen. Until you have a human race held hostage to fear. The problem with increasing surveillance and security, however, we're kind of thinking out loud together, the problem of increasing security and surveillance means you're going to have to abrogate some of our coveted civil liberties. You're going to have to do it. Did you, did, did you follow the, NAS, the NSA flap back this last year? Does the name Edward Snowden ring a bell to you? Come on, you, unless you slept through last year. The guy stole all these secrets and then released them. And we found out that the government, in fact, is tapping cell phones and emails. And, well, we're just not sure if you might be a threat. That will, have to go, that will have to go exponentially up if you're going to prevent random acts of violence, security, and surveillance. May I suggest to you that all it takes... Now, here's where I need you to hang in with me. All it will take is one massive crisis. Then what Americans are talking about back our own uh, our own terrorism event, September 11, 2001. Two days after that event, they surveyed the American public and they asked the question, would you, for the sake of security, would you be willing to give up personal or national uh, liberties, civil liberties? 52% of Americans... How many years ago would that be? 13, 14 years ago. 52% of Americans, one out of two essentially, said, yep, you can take it. I mean, I'll give a few up for this case, for the sake of my security. I wonder if they took that survey right now in Paris, what the numbers would be. I wonder if they took it back in the United States again, what the numbers would be. Ladies and gentlemen, it's not, this is not rocket science. A series of crises, escalating crises, will bring the world to its knees. Why? Because it's out of control. We love control. What kind of crisis are you talking about, Dwight? Just one massive one? Or, or, or a series of back-to-back crises? Such as, what do you, what, what do you think? Well, okay, uh, a natural crisis, an earthquake, L.A., on steroids, 10,000. This nation would be on its knees. It could be a medical crisis. Ebola, also on steroids, jumps the firewall, comes to an uninfected community or society, and before we know it, contact has been made, and this thing is gone. Could. It could be a technological crisis. I mean, can you believe this Sony thing over the holiday, the the North Korean Sony? It's embarrassing. But do you know what we learned? We learned that an anonymous circle of people somewhere on earth can bring a nation to its knees, shut down our power grid, shut down our hospital grid, shut down our law enforcement grid, just boom, gone. They hacked. They hacked us. Could be an economic crisis. This unbelievable stock market acting as if there were no tomorrow just through the roof, poised on this bubble. One razor prick, and it's over. Any crisis... All you have to do is look at human history. Come on, guys. Just look at human history. Go back and look at the nations. Nation, you want to talk about the Nazi regime? You want to talk about Pol Pot regime? You want to talk about the Roman Empire collapsing? What happened? A massive crisis struck. And in order for government to control 
keep a hand on control, it resorted to, it resorted to measures that today we find absolutely abhorrent. You can't take that away. But the American public is starting to say, well, you could take, your, your, well, maybe that one, well, maybe that one. The whole race will accept coercive, authoritarian control of the masses. And what's so striking to me is that the two major apocalyptic books in the Bible, that would be Daniel and Revelation, here is what's so striking to me. Both of those books predict that just before the return of Jesus, it will be precisely that coercive control of the human race by governments. Authoritarian for the sake of security. And the Bible says, finis. What's the point, Dwight? Why, why, why all of this? Here's the point. And I need you to get this. You can get there from here. I had a friend of mine this week who's saying, eh, I don't know, probably at least 40 years. Another friend said, eh, maybe a year. I'm not in the numbers. But I'm telling you what, one major crisis and we're in yeah but come on no 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 no. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist most of you are too I know that there are Adventists however who say hey yeah I'm an Adventist of course what does an Adventist mean I believe that Jesus is coming again but most I, I know some Adventists who are saying hey not now mañana 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 not now For them, the word imminent or eminence, not in my vocabulary. My point today is to disabuse you of that misguided notion. You're wrong. If you are a Seventh-day Adventist, I need to assure you, young Adventists, not sure yet, am I going to really go with this movement? Not so young Adventists, I've become sophisticated now, I've educated myself out of any kind of eminence. I don't care who you are, I need to assure you today that what we believe the Bible teaches about the end of the world is in fact never more critically evident today than any time in human history. Any time. Any time. Ah, Dwight, the problem with you is you are an alarmist. That is what you are. Oh, really? I subscribed to a financial e-letter from a, an economist named John Malden. The December 31 issue comes out. And he shares a quotation from the, da- the young Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard of the previous century. I'll put his words on the screen for you. This is Kierkegaard. Some event, some tragedy has happened. He's commenting. He first describes the tragedy and then re- relates to it. Okay, Kierkegaard on the screen. In a theater it happened that a fire started off stage. The clown came out to tell the audience. They thought it was a joke. They applauded. He told them again and again and they became more hilarious. Now the young philosopher responds. This is the way, I suppose, that the world will be destroyed amid the universal hilarity of wits and wags who think it is I want you to finish that sentence. Pull your study guide out right now. Reach in your worship bulletin. Pull out that study guide. Let's go. I want you to get the, this. This quotation is a keeper. Ushers, if you would kindly now assist us to make sure that everybody here gets the study guide. I want to come to, come to the story featured for today. But first, I want this quotation. 
By the way, may I just, while they're, while, while they're handing this out, no, let me talk to the, uh, those who are watching online, live streaming right now. We're delighted to have you. I want you to have the same study guide you're watching on television or live streaming. Go to our website. Let me put it on the screen for you. There it is, www.pmchurch.tv. Brand new series starting right now, Stories in the Rearview Mirror. Sometimes you have to look back to understand what's forward. And today's piece, Why I Believe We're Running Out of Time. All right? So those of you online, just, just uh, download that. You go, to, you go to the first piece today, click on the study guide, you'll have the same study guide. You'll get the Kierkegaard uh, quotation as well. I want to say, before we fill in that quotation, some of you are saying, you know what, this, this scenario takes a lot of faith. Are you kidding? You don't need faith at all. What we just went through, common sense. That's all you need. You have talking heads. You have bloggers all over the planet who are asking, what's happening to the civilization? You don't need a shred of faith. That's my point. You have faith, for which I'm grateful. Now put your faith to the times and figure it out. Soren Kierkegaard, read the quote again and you fill it in. I like the way it ends. In a theater, it happened that a fire started off stage. The clown came out to tell the audience. They thought it was a joke and they applauded. He told them again and again and they became more hilarious. Young Soren writes, this is the way I suppose that the world will be destroyed amid the universal hilarity of wits and wags who think it is all a joke. I don't believe it. I don't believe it at all. Don't be in that. Don't be in that camp. The building burns down. And you think it's a joke. They, they laughed, by the way, they laughed Noah out of town. You remember that story? They laughed him out of town. 120 years, he would not be moved. 120 years, just relentless. He, hey, he, stays, he stays on message. So I hope you don't mind if, if, if I might do the same. Let's go to Jesus. I want you to look at these words. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. Matthew 24. Yeah, I want you to see this. Red letter. This, the the uh, scholars call this the little apocalypse. So you have Daniel and Revelation, but this is the little apocalypse here just before Jesus dies. Daniel, uh, uh, Matthew, rather, chapter 24, 32, verse 32. I'm in the NIV. Any translation you have, that's fine. Track along. Put the words on the screen for you. Now, Jesus speaking. Red letters, red letters. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out. By the way, fig trees all over Palestine today, they were at the time of Christ. And if you see that little green, that means warm weather is coming. That's what it signals. And that's exactly what Jesus says. When you see those twigs, you know that summer is near. Now verse 33. Even so, when you see all these things. What things are you talking about, Jesus? All these signs of of global collapse. That's his immediate context, global collapse. He's just described them. When you see these things... See all these things. You know that it, and by the way, the Greek can also be translated he. You know that he is near right at the door. Verse 34, amen. Truly I tell you, this generation that is witnessing this full-blown meltdown on this planet, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Now, verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. You can trust me. I am coming back. And when you see these things begin to happen, look up, open your eyes. I'm at the door. That's what he's saying. 
What's he describing? Just go back to verse 30. I love this. This is Jesus' own description of his return. Then will appear, this is verse 30, then will appear the sign of the, pe- uh, the, sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of, of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with powers and great glory. We didn't know this, was what's, this is what's supposed to happen next. We did not know. And they mourn. You know better. You got something to share. The second coming of Jesus. There it is. The end of the world. Although he certainly did not believe it. No, not him. This 32-year-old captain in the American army in the war of 1812. In fact, as he's writing the letter, his hand trembles with adrenaline. You know how you get really excited and your hand trembles? He, he, he cannot believe what he and his 47 men, 47 men signed up under his leadership. He was a leader. He can't believe what they have just survived. He's writing a letter to his commanding officer. What's the date for the letter? September 11, 1814. He can hardly contain himself with the letter on the screen. This is the actual letter. Sir, it is over. It is done. The British fleet has struck the American flag. The American flag won, in other words. Great slaughter on both sides. They are in plain view here where, where I am now riding. The sight was majestic. Oh, it was noble. It was grand. This morning at 10 o'clock, the British opened up a destructive fire upon us, both by water and by land. You have no idea of the battle. You must conceive of what we feel, for I cannot describe it. I am satisfied, though, that I can fight. I know I am him no coward. Three of my men are wounded by a shell which burst within two feet of me. Roadside device. That's what we know. Within two feet of me. He jumps up. He reads that letter, makes sure it has everything in it. He jumps back down to that seat and he signs it, scribbles it. Yours forever, William Miller. William Miller. Nobody on the planet could possibly have guessed when he scribbled that signature. Nobody except God. That this deist army officer in the War of 1812 would one day lead one of the great revivals in American history. You can't believe it. God is never through with you. Never through with you. Never quit. He's not through. Deists, by the way. What's, what's a deist mean? Deists, are there still a few around, I suppose? Deists believe that uh, God wound the earth up like an old clock and then put it there and left it, and you guys are on your own. Very hands-off God. Miller Hartley was born a deist. He grew up in a very religious home. Having a, a Baptist preacher for a grandfather sure helped. A bright guy. In fact, he read himself out of faith. He read Voltaire, the French, the, the French infidel. Read Voltaire, then he read uh, Thomas Paine, the English-American philosopher. He left the religion of his childhood. Ah, I don't need it. He's quite a speaker. In fact, he would be grabbed by his community. Hey, yo, you want to speak for for Fourth uh, of July event or whatever? He married the lovely Lucy Smith, elected by his town to be Justice of Peace, a rather well-accepted gentleman. And so it happens that after the war. The young American captain chooses to settle down in a little village called Lowhampton, New York, to the quiet life of a country farmer. In 1816, his community decides to have a commemoration celebrating the Battle of Plattsburgh. That's the one that William Miller wrote about, that he was in the thick of. Miller, who was sobered by that close call, was attending church. He was not a member, but just, you know, checking it out. I don't want to get too far away. And they asked if he might read the sermon that day, and so he prepared a little sermon, and stood up, and halfway into it, he starts sobbing. He has to quit, overcome with emotions. It was a sign that something was happening in this deist heart. 
that, was, that would change his life forever. He describes his conversion. Uh, I want you to see it uh, on the screen. In fact, you have to fill it in. Uh, hear, the, hear the words. He, he said, 1816, I saw that the Bible did bring to view just such a Savior as I needed. And I was perplexed to find how an uninspired book should develop principles so perfectly adapted to the wants of the fallen world. I was constrained to admit that the the scriptures must be a revelation from God. They became my delight. And, I love this, in Jesus, I found a friend. End quote. Isn't that good? Yeah. Listen, you may be one like Miller. You're here. Because this is kind of where you hang out once in a while. You may consider yourself an agnostic. Eh, I'm not sure. Maybe an atheist. But the story of this young American leader is a morality tale to remind all of us that the reality of faith, if embraced, can set the skeptic free from hopelessness and nihilism. You perhaps would be open, and it has to be an open faith from an open mind. You perhaps would be open to faith in a supernatural being whose name is Jesus. How did, how did, how did uh, Miller put it? The scriptures became my delight, and in Jesus I found a friend, a passion, a passion for the Savior. Now, skeptic friends, yo, will please. Prove it to us. Prove it to us. So now he plunges into the Bible. He's never read the book before. But keep in mind, no internet uh, resources, no theological library, nothing. He's just going to have to do it the old-fashioned way, and that's what he does. Put his words on the screen. This, he describes his method. I then devoted myself to prayer. You get into, you get into Jesus as a friend, that's exactly what happens next. You, you just get into prayer. It's not some flowery little language thing. It's just me talking to the being. I'm accepted as my Savior. I then devoted myself to prayer and the reading of the Word. I commenced with Genesis. So here's his method. And I read it verse by verse, proceeding no faster than the meaning of the several passages should be so unfolded. Whenever I found anything obscure, man, I can't understand. What does this mean? My practice was to compare it with all collateral passages. And by the help of Cruden, that would be Cruden's concordance, I examined all the texts of Scripture. Then by letting every word have its proper bearing on the subject of the text, if my view of it harmonized with with every collateral passage in the Bible, it ceased to be a difficulty. I mean, look at folks. It hardly gets more methodical than that and hardly simpler. You just take your Bible and you just work through it one verse at a time. And I suppose the God who took that humble method and spoke to the mind, the bright mind of this American, could also speak to your mind and mine. The same way, one line at a time. Then in 1818, okay, so he's converted, meets Jesus in 1860, 1818, two years into his study, he comes, he's working his way through the Bible, he comes to Daniel 8.14. Anybody know what Daniel 8.14 says? Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary, how's it end? Then shall the sanctuary be what? Cleansed. Miller, poring over this text, cross-referencing with his Cruden's Concordance, correctly concludes that a day in Bible prophecy equals a literal year. We have brilliant scholars today who've come to the same conclusion. But he wrongly assumed 
That the cleansing of the sanctuary meant the cleansing of the earth by fire at the return of Christ. Now, he had done his prophetic arithmetic, and by the way, spot on with his arithmetic. But here's the, con- here's, here's the conclusion that came to his mind. Put it on the screen. I was thus brought in 1818 to the solemn conclusion that in about 25 years from that time, all the affairs of our present state would be wound up. Earth will end. Oh, How bright and glorious the truth appeared. I became nearly settled in my conclusions and began to wait and watch and pray for my Savior's coming. A passion for the coming of the Savior. But what's so amazing to me, i got to tell you this, what's so amazing to me is how much time he allows to get by him before doing anything about it. So remember the dates, 1816 conversion, 1818, Daniel 8.14. Then, And he says it's going to be in about 25 years. The world's going to end in 25 years. For the next 13 of those 25 years, do you know what he's doing? Nothing. He said, I've got to recalculate that. I've got to recalculate, recalculate, recalculate. And all the while, this this voice inside of him, this this conviction, you know what? What are you going to do about it? Are you going to tell anybody? Are you going to say anything? Come on, tell, tell, tell. And he says, no, no, no. I'm a Baptist farmer. I'm not a preacher. One day... August 1831, this is so, the the, the, the conviction is so tormenting to him that he says, all right, enough already. I got a deal for you. You give me an invitation to preach, I'll go. Nobody's going to ask an old country farmer to preach. Done deal. Reverend Maxwell in his book, Moving Out, tells us that Saturday morning, Within 30 minutes, within 30 minutes, by the way, be very careful about the deals you cut with God. You, you can cut it any way you want. He says, I, I, I can do that. I can do that. Within 30 minutes, there's a knock at the door. William goes to the door, and there is his young nephew, Irving, who lives 16 miles away, who left home long before William Miller ever made a bargain with God. He says, Uncle William, Father sent me before breakfast today. Our Baptist preacher is gone tomorrow, and he wants to know if you wouldn't mind preaching. Oh, and by the way, he says to tell you, preach on what you're studying right now. (laughs) Unbelievable. I have stood in the maple grove behind that humble little farmhouse where this great man stumbles in tears, I'm sure falls to his knees and says, my God, what are you asking of me? One historian put it this way, into that grove went a farmer, out came a preacher. And the rest is history. The rest is history. In the course of the next 13 years, hold on to this, this Baptist farmer turned preacher would preach over 3,200 times. I've never preached. In the smallest villages, in the greatest cities along the eastern seaboard of the United States, historians estimate, hold on to this, that by May 1844, five million copies of the Millerite publications had been distributed. Five million. New York City, giant Millerite convocations filled the Broadway tabernacle that seats 3,500 at a time. In the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, 5,000 at a time in the, in the museum auditorium. Every pamphlet, every convocation ignited with a passionate word, Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. Man. 
so extensive was William Miller's travel and investment in this blessed hope that it nearly broke him financially and physically. Passion for the salvation of the lost. Eventually, the Millerite movement set October 22, 1844 as the date for Christ's return. You need to know this. Miller himself resisted that, resisted that until just a few weeks before. He said, okay. And of course, Jesus did not come. It was a bitter blow to the movement and to these people who call themselves Adventists. Some had closed their businesses. Some had abandoned their farms over this passionate hope. And the skeptics, oh, it was a field day for skeptics, deriding the man and his message. How would you like to be living then? And you be William. By the thousands, those who had once been so passionate, abandoned the movement. Gone. Nineteen days after the great disappointment. That's what historians came to call October 22, 1844. Nineteen days later, William Miller writes a letter to his friend and colleague, leader in the movement, Joshua Himes, pastoring in Boston. These words, you read them, you saw them and heard them a moment ago. I'll put them back on the screen. Although I have been twice disappointed, I am not yet cast down or discouraged. God has been with me in spirit and has comforted me. I have now much more evidence that, that I do believe in God's Word. And although surrounded with enemies and scoffers, yet my mind is perfectly calm And my hope in the coming of Christ is as strong as ever. And I love this. I have fixed my mind upon another time. And here I mean to stand until God gives me more light. And that is today, today, and today until he comes. And I see him for whom my soul yearns. We don't talk about William Miller much anymore. After all, 170 years of gone by. The movement is essentially gone. Though truth be told, like a phoenix out of the ashes of that great disappointment, there was a band of young adults, Protestant, Catholic churches along the seaboard, a band who shared Miller's three passions and who returned to the Scripture after that heartbreaking disappointment. They began to gather in little groups. They'd pray all night. They'd study the Bible all night. We're talking about young adults. All night. Back to the Scriptures. And out of the ashes, these young followers of Christ banded together around their new discovery and eventually formed the movement, the church, the denomination. The Seventh-day Adventist Church. A global movement today of 18-plus million people. And so yesterday, i got to tell you this, on Friday afternoons, everybody leaves. The church is empty. I stay. i got stuff to get off my desk, and usually there are magazines piled up. And so I take that time in the quiet just to go through magazines, tear out, then this is good, oh, I could preach on that someday or whatever. Yesterday, I'm reading the latest issue of Christianity Today, and they have a whole page devoted to the Seventh-day Adventist church. And there I learned, I didn't know this, there I learned 
It's a side box in big capital red that the Seventh-day Adventism is the fifth largest Christian community worldwide after Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Anglicanism, and Assemblies of God. Number five, and I didn't know this either, but they reported that this movement is now welcoming a million people a year globally into it. Wow. In more countries on earth than any other denomination except for Coca-Cola. <laughs> Operating more hospitals and schools than any other Protestant entity. William Miller. Why should William Miller, Miller matter to this generation now? I'll tell you why. Because what ignited him must ignite us. Those three passions. Those three passions. That's what I've been praying over, saying, God, transfer them, please, to us. What are the three passions? Jot them down. Come on. Passion number one. This is from William Miller. Passion number one, for the Savior. Passion for the Savior. I found in Jesus, in Jesus, I found a friend. Direct quote. We read it a moment ago. A passion for the Savior. Skeptic. Meets the Savior. The rest of his life devoted to that passion. Passion number one, a passion for the Savior. Passion number two, a passion for the second coming of the Savior. What was his line? Oh, how bright and glorious his return came, became to me. And then passion number three. Passion number three, for the salvation of all. He is nearly broken financially and physically because of his passion to reach every man, woman, and child within, within his little world. And he did. Three fiery passions. Ah, oh, we embrace them. As a people today, three fiery passions that must ignite the hearts of young, middle-aged, and old Seventh-day Adventists. We'll not make it without the three. We began with the three. We, we must end with the three. Passion for the Savior. Passion for the Savior's second coming. Passion for the salvation of all. Yeah, but how do I do it? Simple. Just like William Miller. Jot it down, please. Couldn't be simpler. Number one, go to the Word. One verse at a time. Make it your own word from God every morning, every morning. Just pull that book out. I don't, I'm not telling you how much time to take, but spend some time in the Word. Every day. Hear the voice of God speaking to you. He will. Promise. He will. Number one, go to the Word. Number two, go to your knees. Go to your knees. Pray. Talk to the God who's just spoken to you through His Word. Talk to Him and say, God, what do you want me to do with this today? You will get instructions just as surely as every great man and woman and not so great man and woman in Scripture has gotten instructions. You will. And finally, number three, go to the lost. Go to the lost. Do you know what? We have students on this campus who have never come to Jesus and some who long ago came and have no, no contact with Him now. You may, be, you may be rooming with one. You may live down the hall from one. Go to the camp. Go to, go to them. Do you know we have hundreds of people in this community who have never connected to Jesus? They're not into anything. You may live next door to one. You may they may live just down the road from you. Go to them. I need to tell you this. hope you don't mind. But the volunteer leadership of this church this year is taking seriously, seriously this passion, these three passions. And guess what? You know what they voted? Never in the history of Pioneer. But they said it's time to step out by faith. 
Kingdom growth goal for 2015, here it is. 125 baptisms in the next 12 months. Never done it before. But for that to become reality, you and I are going to have to think about this for a few weeks. Talk to each other about it. The Children's Sabbath School has already taken action. The Adult Sabbath School has, take, has taken action. The Board of Elders has taken action, providing strategies for you and me to become contagious Adventists in our witness. It's time, guys. Do you understand? One more massive crisis and life and freedom as we know it, it's gone. It'll have to be if you're going to spare the human race. We have, we have an open door. We have an open door. How long it will remain open, I have no clue. Take out your Connect card, please, and then I'll tell you a story. We end. Connect card, visitors, we're glad to have you. We do this every Sabbath. I want to have everybody have a chance for this. Uh, so I'll give you a moment. Just find it. It's, it's tucked away in your, in your worship bulletin. On the front, guests, we, we just put the information we're comfortable with, our name, email address, whatever. But on the back, my next step today, number one, I'd like to get to know Jesus. Please send me steps to Christ. Maybe like Miller, you just, you just haven't been into it. Our ushers are now moving to receive these. Maybe like Miller, you just, yeah, I've not been into it. I want to invite you this new year to explore the possibility that supreme being wants to be friends with you too. Ask for the book, Steps to Christ. By the way, give us an address here. We'll mail it to you. We'll get it to you. We have to have an address. Please. Oh, by the way, you see the box right beside it? I'd like information on baptism. If you haven't followed Jesus yet in baptism, you've gotten to know him, but you haven't followed him in baptism, this is the year. Perfect time. Nobody's going to be baptized next week. You make the decision. We'll be in touch with you. We'll help you plan and grow and examine for yourself your faith. Oh, box number two, I'd like a new Bible study plan to get to, into God's Word this new year. You put your email address, it has to be legible, email address here, we'll send you that plan. Get, get you in a whole new way into the, into, into the Word this, this new year. And finally, number three, I'd like to join a grow group that will teach me how to share my faith and be a contagious Adventist. Put your name and an email address there. We're putting our grow groups together right now. We'll send you the times you can find that group and you can become a contagious Adventist. It's simple. We've got some great materials that we've created here. I'd like you to experience that. So, so just put your name and an email address. We'll be back in touch with you. Now that story. There's a 17-year-old teenage girl and a 21-year-old young man who became what they called back then Millerites, believers in what William Miller was teaching, his passion for Jesus and his return. So the 21-year-old man, young man, he goes off and he preaches his heart out, Jesus is coming soon. And the 17-year-old teenager girl receives a stunning divine confirmation of her call to serve the returning Jesus. Then they meet, they fall in love, and they get married. James and Ellen White, you may have heard of them. Throughout his ministry, this former Millerite preacher, now Seventh-day Adventist preacher, he loved to sing what has been recorded as perhaps the favorite Millerite hymn. And when he would come to, because he was a guest preacher, when he would come to the back door of the church or the front door of the church, he'd, he'd come walking down, humble little church, he'd come walking down the center aisle. You will see the Lord a-coming, and he'd just be singing it. Not a great singer. You will see the Lord a-coming. You will see the Lord a-coming in a few... I'm not a great singer either, so I could do the same thing. (laughs) You know what? 
I think of that picture of him. The man buried in the dust of the earth. He died two years after the disappointment. I have set my mind on another time. Today and today and today until he comes. I think of that fervor and that passion and I say, dear God, start it at Andrews University. Let's take this legacy of leadership and take it to the world. Please. That passion... Those three passions, ignite them through our Lord Jesus in our hearts this new year. Do whatever it takes on this campus. Do whatever it takes in this congregation. Do whatever it takes in our hearts to set us ablaze so that as the movement began, it will end. Sold out for Jesus. And now he who testifies to these things, says, I am coming soon. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And now the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all God's people. Amen.